And yet I have read of a greater knowledge than all this, how there were bees so wise and skillful as not only to descry a certain little god, though he came among to them in likeness of a wafer cake, but also to build him an artificial chapel. If I should relate the story, all men I know would not believe it, notwithstanding because every man may make some use of it. You shall have it. A certain simple woman, having some stalls of bees which yielded unto her desired profit, but to consume and die of the moraine, made her money to another woman more simple than herself, who gave her counsel to get a consecrated host or round God Almighty and put it among them. According to whose advice she went to the priest to receive the host, which when she had done, she kept it in her mouth, and being come home again, she took it out and put it into one of her hives. Whereupon the moraine ceased and the honey abounded. The woman, therefore, lifting up the hive at the due time to take out the honey, saw there, most strange to be seen, a chapel built by the bees with an altar in it, the walls adorned by marvelous skill of architecture with windows conveniently set in their places, also a door and a steeple with bells, and the host being laid upon the altar, the bees making a sweet noise flew round about it. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals and history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And as you may have (laughs) as you may have guessed, today we have some guests. And our topic, of course, is bees. We have with us today two well-known scholars of the early modern period. We have Keith Botello from Kennesaw State University and Joe Campana from Rice University, who's also the director of their Center for Environmental Studies. And you might ask why we have two experts, and that is because they have just come out with an academic book from Penn State University called Lesser Living Creatures of the Renaissance. So they are, in fact insect experts, especially in the Renaissance. So welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, and it's a beautiful book. Just that cover is so evocative. Credit for the cover goes to Keith. He picked it. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us, Joe, a little bit about this account you just read of the bees who build a chapel. With windows, yes. The with windows. That has windows. windows. And a choir, evidently. <laughs> it's a marvelous story. It comes from um, one of the most famous of what was a rather substantial burst of bee books or beekeeping books in the late 16th into the 17th century. This one by Charles Butler called A Feminine Monarchy. Um, sorry, The Feminine Monarchy. And um, the story, which is often repeated, appears midway through. One of the things I love about, of the many things I love about these works, they are full of, you know, ancient bee knowledge that's been traveling through kind of texts, and they're full of stories. They're full of what we would call myth or fable, and everything, all these different kinds of information are sitting next to one another and have kind of equal weight in the text. And they are captivating as a, as a response, um, because why wouldn't our responses to other creatures be um, to have that whole range from what we would consider scientific fact all the way to the kind of um, greatest flights of the imagination? And some of what appeals to me about looking back at natural history in the, in the middle ages in the early modern period. And that lore that is certainly 
from the medieval period that you get doesn't dissipate in the Renaissance. These beekeeping treatises, as Joe mentioned, which really flourished in the 17th century in England in particular, they really do touch upon both lore and folklore and call on Aristotle at the same time that they're talking about modern beekeeping practices. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're really uh, fascinating accounts of beekeepers and bee culture in the period. Before we sort of dive into the whole history of beekeeping and, and the history of the lore of bees, I guess I wanted to ask a question because you mentioned that the title of this work is A Feminine Monarchy, yeah, which indicates to me that they understand that the, the bee at the center of a colonial beehive is indeed female. That is certainly not the case in the Middle Ages. In fact, there's this idea of this king bee, and you find it in the ancient texts as well, this idea that the bees are organized in a kind of, I almost want to say, constitutional monarchy, (laughs) but around a male figure. Yes, this is one of the most fascinating things. Um, Most of the texts in this moment in, in England actually also referred to a king or a master bee. Charles Butler was really the first, and certainly in the English texts, to suggest that, um, no, in fact, it's not a king or master bee, it is a queen bee. Interesting fact, who was Charles Butler? He was a composer, which is really interesting. And in fact, in some of the editions, there's not only a little attempt to capture the sound of bees in a musical staff, but he also composes a a beautiful madrigal (laughs) about bees and about the Amazonian hierarchy of bees. Mm. Who was Charles Butler? Queen Elizabeth's beekeeper, right? And so politics matter, right? They matter in a lot of ways in these texts, and they're constantly referring to politics in general, theories of politics, but they also really matter who is working for whom, which is why, and, and Keith knows a little bit more, I think, about this text, Moses Rusden's later text, maybe this kind of the second of the really big canonical B books in this kind of 80 or 90 year period, who revered Butler and he said, oh, everything's right. Oh, except for that bit about it being a queen bee. No, no, no. It was a king or master bee. He was King Charles's (laughs) beekeeper, right? So sometimes it's just that simple, right? (laughs) Was there a longer running squabble? I mean, did the sex of of the the central bee become a real subject of controversy at at some point? Or did those debates just gradually fade and the assumption that it was a queen bee take hold. Keith, you may remember more about when and finally it was settled, right? Um, yeah. What I can say quickly about these mom- these earlier decades is that there was a lot of complication in the text about sex, gender, and sexuality because it was clear like something was going on, but parthenogenesis was not yet quite understood. I don't think that's really understood until about the 18th century, a little bit later, mid mid to late 18th century. Um, And certainly we didn't even, we weren't even, I think, able to confirm what actually happened in mating until the mid 20th century when it was possible to film bees in the kind of the mating flights, and then you could actually see what happened. So these texts have a lot of mystery and complication around those questions because it's just it's still it's still unknown what all the kind of parameters are so it's less about a kind of fierce debate than a lot of we think it's sort of like this and we think reproduction goes this way but yeah yeah and how how does that happen in the 17th century uh how do you get inside of a hive right there were these inventions of glass hives or observation hives in Mm. europe in the 17th century and there's accounts of, uh, you know, that this opens up the hive for humans to view it. 
But bees often would put wax over that glass and prevented humans from actually seeing it. So other than than looking in and peering in that way, how were natural historians able to see those workings of the hive? It was very difficult. You couldn't really follow them in flight. So it's true of insects in general. Like there are a lot of mysteries about sort of birth and conception because of the difficulties of observation. Yes, but what's so interesting to me is that whereas a lot of the insects that we've already talked about in the past, and even mice have this parthenogenic origin. The parthenogenesis of the bees is special. You get St. Ambrose back in the fourth century saying that bees are sort of the closest to humans in their intelligence and their cleanliness. And he says, their bodies are uncontaminated in the common act of parturition since they have no part in conjugal embraces. They do not unnerve their bodies in love, nor are they torn by the travail of childbirth. I mean, This idea of the virgin bee is really, really central in Christian thought in the Middle Ages, for sure. I would say maybe one way to describe it is that there are a lot of anxieties circulating in these texts, Um, less of a kind of point-to-point debate other than than a, a set of anxieties. What uh, because of this principle, like so you just mentioned, apes ut eunt debemus imitari, a famous line from Seneca, we should imitate the bees. Now, he writes that in an essay that's really about the creative imagination. What should the writer do? The writer flits about like a bee from flower to flower, gathering different kinds of wisdom, which is to say from different authors, and then ma- ma- magically making it into something else, nectar or honey. But it was a principle, if it's the case that bees are an image of God's perfect natural order, humans should imitate them. Wait a minute, at the end of every season, the males in the hive who are sluggish and lazy and and look just like some courtier figures, right, have to, are, are killed or ejected from the hive. Oops, wait, you know, there's, there's these great moments of identifying with or wanting to imitate this idea of perfect natural order in the beehive and then stopping short like, oh, wait a minute. And, oh, wait a minute. Is it a queen? Like, oh, wait a minute. How do they reproduce? What's going on with the men? Right. All of those things show up as anxieties that sort of keep coming back through the text until, again, in some later centuries, we get greater certainty about some of those scientific answers. And But it also makes the text so engaging to read because of all those uncertainties and conjectures that run through them. And Alexa, you were mentioning the early Christian texts uh, that were referencing bees. And in the medieval period, that was certainly the case. Looking at monastic communities, for instance, the honeybee was often praised for their ability to live an ordered life and a a life of labor. Um, And that was a model for Christian community in particular. So much so that there were some Irish monasteries that modeled their, their huts after the skep beehive. They actually looked, If you, they still exist today, they're made of stone, but um, on these islands in Ireland, uh, it's interesting to see that, this natural architecture, which has, has really inspired so many people in their own building. Uh, looking to the bees in that way is really fascinating. That is fascinating. I had no idea that that shape was a bee. I mean, I, now that you say it, it seems so obvious. But I had always just thought, well, you know, you're on a remote island and you know, you don't have access to the main yeah, stonemasons right. of the continent. You just sort of pile things up and there's what it looks like. But that's a beehive. It attaches to what Joe was saying, too, about uh, Seneca and the scholarly pursuits with, you know, monks being involved in scriptoriums and in the, in the book arts, too. It makes sense that these monasteries were maybe not only modeling their huts uh, after the skep beehive, but 
we're probably keeping bees as well and, and using them in the book arts, uh, using the wax in that way and, um, and you know, helping them in, in those productions. So I, I wondered if you could take a second to describe for our listeners what a skep is, because these days, most people, if you're familiar with beehives at all, you're familiar with the big the square towers of hives, but the skep is a practice that goes farther back, I believe. Unless you're from Utah and it's on your state flag. <laughs> <laughs> that one. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, the skep hive was the uh, very early form of, of the hive, usually made with straw. And those straw hives and, and other things in mud, you know, they had a, a, a sort of a dome-like shape to them. And they posed a problem for how do you get the honey out of there? Very different from, you know, our modern hives where you can extract the honey pretty easily. Um, so often skep hives, while they, they were a shelter, uh, temporary homes for bees, uh, in the Renaissance and in the medieval period and, and earlier, they often were not very good to the bees because unless they swarmed out of there, if, how do you get the honey out? You had to kill the bees often. Many stories about that exist, about the, the killing of the bees to get the honey and the wax. Yeah, and if I can add just really quickly to that, the um, Renaissance Italian sort of epic romance writer, Ludovico Ariosto, had his own personal sign, like his impresa, and it was an image of a hive with sort of smoke around it. And the, the motto was pro bono malum, for good ill, right? You're repaid ill for good. And his model was um, the idea that bees work so virtuously to create their hives and their collectives and they make honey and humans just come in and grab it all. Um, and there's sort of many, there are a couple different versions of the image, but they have the smoke that was used to, and, and still often is to paralyze the bees so you can get access. I mean, he was also, of course, being, you know, a bit of an egotistical writer saying like, and just as the bees are treated poorly, so I too, launching my wonderful works into the world, am sometimes repaid with ill for the goodness that I do. But it's another, it's a kind of uh, habit of thought that was so prominent in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance of, of thinking with bees, sort of thinking through what we sometimes call metaphor or patterns of, of, of life. And it creates wonderful, strange forms of engagement. But they were very, but also Ariosto was very conscious. Now, he also wasn't writing a treatise in the support of the rights of bees. But on the other hand, certainly there was awareness of a kind of human um, rapaciousness with respect to honey and wax. You mentioned honey and wax. And of course, aside from the spiritual symbolism of the bee in these religious communities, Keith, that you were mentioning, and, and in Christianity generally, beeswax was really fundamental and, and really valuable commodity. If you think about the role of candles and, and illumination in the liturgy, and especially the one of my favorites is the Paschal candles, the really, really yeah. big candles that are meant to basically burn throughout the Lenten season and then to, again, be relit for special occasions, funerals, the Virgin Purification Mass, all of these moments when that Paschal candle gets relit. Lit. It's a, a candle for the whole year. That's a lot of beeswax. And that's a lot of destroyed beehives or skeps <laughs> before you can make a candle. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that economic aspect of beekeeping and bees in the early modern. 
It was so important. I mean, it's funny, the, the, the different qualities, the virtues associated with bees, yes, yeah, some of them lean more into the to ideals that have to do with how a community forms or stays together. Many of them are very much about um, economics. When Keith and I were writing together an essay for these, um, this sort of two-volume edited collection you mentioned earlier, we said, no, the bees are ours, so we're going to write the essay on bee together, because it's how we kind of actually met some years ago, showing up on a number of panels at conferences and both being like, like, oh, wow, he's writing about bees too. So, um, but what we sort of, we, when we wrote that essay, we pulled out a little quote from Moses Rusden's Further Discovery of Bees, which is from 1679, a really important sort of 17th century text. And the, the different virtues laid out are that one ought to be as profitable, laborious, loyal, swift, nimble, quick of scent, and neat as a bee. But the first two, profitable and laborious. The idea that bees were creatures that were willing to work themselves to death, which is a complicated virtue to associate with any kind of living creature, but also that they were um, so economical in their ways of arranging their worlds. And this tied into also another kind of you know, somewhat reality and fantasy in the 17th century as England is trying to recover from the civil wars, there were a lot of texts um, often discussed in terms of a kind of agricultural revolution, not only new technologies, but the idea that if everybody could get their agriculture in order, the economy would, res would be restored. If, and if every man, and it usually was articulated as a man, could have a beehive and produce honey and wax, everything would be well. And there's a fascinating, uh, when you see this rise of beekeeping treatises in the 17th century in England, there's also, you know, we have access now to these book of receipts. Uh, so you have these recipes that are being used uh, and, and using honey um, in these. And you can see these amazing recipes that call for a gallon of honey, let's say, in making a, of a, a, a Welsh drink called methaglen, which is like mead, a, it's a sweetened mead. And a gallon of honey is a lot of honey. It takes a lot of bees to produce a teaspoon of honey. Um, so you can imagine the how that's tied into um, not just labor, but also into to agriculture, to the workings of a home. Many women were writing these, which is so interesting. We were talking about with Queen Elizabeth and the uh, the gendering of of the queen bee, but uh, women were writing these these recipe books, and uh, they had access to hives it seems, and uh, by looking at these recipes. They were the ones who were most likely raising the bees. So England, and there's documentary facts uh, about this, about women who were beekeepers and, um, and their use of, of the bees uh, for home products. Just to add quickly kind of two things. One is to, is to say from that story I told earlier from the feminine monarchy, that's a woman actually in the story. And she's actually talking to another woman about getting hive, sorry, getting honey from her hive. So even as those texts often addressed it, themselves as if it were only men, right? Sort of having their homesteads and having their sort of hives um, and getting their honey and wax. Um, the stories about women's participation are sort of are, are, are big in a number of these texts. Second, I just want to say quickly, and someone you may have had on your show, I'm not sure, Erica Fudge wrote a really wonderful book called Quick Cattle and Dying Wishes. She tries to, she's an animal historian. She tries to think through what we can know about people's relationships to animals in this era. And she did it by looking at wills. And in a lot of wills, what's going to happen to the hive after someone dies? Because it was mm -hmm. 
sort of part of the family, but also definitely part of the property. Does that relate at all to the tradition of um, the beekeeper going and telling the bees when, you know, the owner of the hive has passed? I know there's a famous story about Queen Elizabeth. That idea of this ritual of telling the bees is very old. I'm not even sure if anyone knows quite where it comes from, other than that it's a very long-standing sort of attention. But something Keith and I have talked a lot about, and I've talked a lot about with other people, is how do we even classify what the human relationship to the bees would be? It's not quite a pet relationship. It's not quite a livestock relationship, though they could say that they're elements of both. They're very independent creatures, though they also kind of co-evolve with humans in some complicated ways. But there are these really intense moments of emotional connection, like that ritual of telling the bees that the beekeeper has passed. So what you've described is very much a local domestic production in the sense that you know many households would have hives. And I wonder, is there any developing trade, either like national or international trade in honey or wax developing in the period? Because today we see that sort of, I mean, there's still a remaining tension between the, the individual beekeeper who might have a hive or two, and then large beekeeping organizations that truck hives, you know, lots of hives around and, and are essentially what we would call industrial. Is there any shipment of, of these things that we see in the records? Yeah, we do have, there is a record from 1617 uh, of honeybees coming to the Bermudas, actually. So we know that in the 17th century, the Virginia Company, they took possession of the Bermudas. So bees then found their way to, to the Americas. So that is sort of the start here in America of, of that. But there was, between countries in particular, there was always talk in these bee treatises about who had the best honey. England often liked to, to boast, as they did with just about everything. Uh, my map is bigger <laughs> than your map. My honey is better than your honey. <laughs> um, uh, so there is that sort of thing with, that was going on. I think I've read a couple of things by scholars. There's a guy named Mark Whelan who's worked on Central Europe and the Hanseatic League and, and the trade in wax and honey that the Hans engaged in. And then there's another scholar, Alexandra Sapochnik, who has written about actually the cross-cultural and cross-religious, cross-confessional um, intricacies of the honey and wax trade in North Africa and specifically in the Maghreb. So well, it, it seems like there must have been some kind of international activity going on. There probably uh, certainly was. I mean, in the 12th century, um, up into the 14th and 15th century, there were royal charters for uh, the worshipful, worshipful company of wax chandlers. And then there was also one for the tallow chandlers as well. So there is a distinction, you know, the thinking in terms of trade and use, uh, both of those uh, with those companies um, uh, having that in mind. But, you know, you were talking earlier about those differences with candles. And when you have beeswax candles and tallow candles, they're very class dictated in some ways too. You know, beeswax, which was very expensive, was often used in churches and royalty uh, would have access to that. But more so in homes, regular homes would use tallow candles uh, because they were cheaper. There's a difference in light and smell, of course, too, which is pretty fascinating. You know, the sweetness of a beeswax candle versus animal fat candles that are that are burning. Uh, there's some record of the indoor theaters maybe using tallow candles at certain points because people would talk about the flickering light 
And that's really interesting to, to, to ground that in a way, to think about light and, and sound and smell and how the, the remnant of the bee can exist long after it's gone. As is the case for tallow as well. I mean, the, the astonishing fact is they're both animal products. And right. it's stunning to think that artificial light, you know, for so long was essentially an, a product of animals. It's a way of saying, too, that, you know, it's funny. And, you know, the let's say the last century or so, our attention to energy is always about what you might call those um, exosomatic forms, right, outside of bodies, right? It has to do with coal or oil or nuclear or, right, et cetera, et cetera. But before a certain moment in history, we're really talking about all, almost all energy was tied to a body of one kind or another, often a human body, often animal bodies, and yes, even bees, which is why sometimes when you sort of think through even these sort of the, the many bee books Keith and I have spent time studying, they're little sort of um, windows into how people understood energy, the energy of bodies, and how that literally powered civilization. Mm-hmm. I mean, along the same lines, you mentioned mead. And obviously, as a medievalist, I often get asked obtuse questions about mead. Do I drink it? Do I like it? You know, do medievalists hang out and drink mead for fun? The answer is yes. But it's sort of the iconic medievalish brew. But I think it has, I mean, it has a much longer history. And I'm sort of curious about the role that it continued to play, at least in English culture uh, well into the modern period. Could you talk a little bit about bees and and the the best byproduct of bees, according to some? <laughs> it is delicious. Uh, <laughs> I just had some this past summer from the Savannah Bee Company uh, that makes uh, a mead as well. But we were talking earlier about how you get honey out of the hive. And oftentimes it was, you know, using sulfur and to uh, kill the, that killed the bees. You'd light a little fire in a pit. But often, so the recipes for mead and methaglin um, actually show is that you would take those skep hives and you would boil them. So you would end up killing the bees that way. Uh, it brings up a really interesting um, thought experiment, I guess, uh, thinking about how you're not, when you're making mead or you're making those sorts of drinks and you're extracting the honey that way, it's inevitable that there's going to be dead bees that remain. So this notion today where we're drinking, you know, um, you know, royal jelly is a really big thing that people are, are into today um, and the bee propolis as well. In the Renaissance, uh, in the boiling of those hives, you people probably were, if they were drinking mead, were probably drinking the dead bee body occasionally as well. Yeah. So Alex, I'm sorry, we've gone so far away from the pleasantness of mead, but but it is a feature of these <laughs> beekeeping texts and of so many natural history texts. There's often at the end of an entry, and it's not just insects, it's all creatures that end up in these texts. There's often a place, It's sometimes it's towards the end where you've, you know, description of the thing and uses and whatever. Then you get to what can you extract from this creature for human use. And it has to, and mm-hmm. it's usually not about food or drink. It's usually about curative of things, right? So mixing some spiders, like these spiders are good for this, or it's what you can extract and and kind of use. Often, um, I'll put medicinally in quotes, I know you all can't see me, but medicinally, um, it, it was the idea that everything should be usable from that creature, as well as you, in the case of bees, you can take the wax and honey 
and you and, and, and everything about that creature should be for human use. There are some recipes that talk about crushing and and using be, you know baby bees from the comb at, for medicinal uses for curing things like canker sores in the mouth or to help cure deafness or uh, to prevent a miscarriage. So those the the bee actually figures quite quite prominently um, in those curatives. I think the medicinal uses of bees and bee products is really fascinating. It continues to be a marketable concept today, as the whole Manuka honey madness <laughs> suggests. But I know there's a text from the 10th century from England by a, a monk named Bald, and he wrote a leech book or a medicinal manual, and he talks about how honey can prevent infection in wounds, which it actually can because yeah. of its naturally, I mean, part of the purpose of honey in the hive, right, is its antiseptic qualities. Yeah, for sure. And does not go bad. <laughs> so what about bee stings? The flip side of the honey, after all, is the sting of the bee. How was that described, understood? Today, bee stings have even been used for medicinal purposes themselves. So I don't know, is that something that, that occurred uh, in the medieval or early modern period? Well, that's a good question. I don't know as much, Keith May, about um, any medicinal sense of stinging. Uh, stinging shows up all over the place. And, and in many, so um, in fact, one of our contributors wrote a really beautiful essay called Sting. That's Julian Yates. It's in the second volume, which is one of the volumes is more about, okay, ants, bee, right, sort of focusing on creatures. The other is more about kind of concepts that come up that might you might think cross creatures. And so sting is one, um, scale, glow, right? So words like that. So Julian Yates writes a great essay on sting. Um, it shows up often um, around moments in the text when the author is speculating on how aggressive bees may or may not be um, relative to wasps, especially. It shows up in places like um, if you are unchaste, bees won't like you and might sting you, right? So, they're, they're, you know, around the sort of uh, bees' relationship to other other humans. A lot of the texts seem to suggest that bees can just keep stinging over and over again and not that a sting is actually lethal too, as it is to the case of some stinging insects, right? So there are even some funny stories about moments when the Again, in the text that have a king bee, the king, of course, has the largest sting. I mean, I guess that's not so surprising that that's going to show up, right? <laughs> but as a sort of as a sort of facet of the sovereignty, right, of of, of that creature, so it's definitely kind of shows up frequently in the texts. Um, yeah, Keith, I don't know. Do you know any 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 sense of the medicinal value of stinging? Of, of sorry, of being stung by bees? Yeah, um, no, I was actually going to take a different tack on that. Uh, the the sting often that I see uh, that, that comes out is having to do with religion, thinking about the Catholicism in particular as uh, as that evil sting that you don't want to get uh, stung by. I don't know those Catholic bees. Maybe I have no idea. Um, but there is also uh, there's there's a famous image um, in. The early 16th century of uh, of Martin Luther, and he's depicted with a seven sort of a seven headed monster, and there's a swarm of bees in his hair, mm. um, and that seems to imply just that you know an attack on on Lutheranism and being associated with those stinging bees. Well, it's interesting too. So um, that brings us in a whole other the, the kind of the religious dimension, which is sort of where we started with that wonderful story of the bees creating their own chapel. Um, it's a great story also because I love the idea that in these texts, the bees are often, 
you know, they've decided to just uh, adopt some human technology and see what it's like. I don't know. Maybe we'll try out that parliament and see what it's like. Do we like it or not? You know, maybe we'll build a chapel, right? But there's a way that um, the bees were consistently associated with religious controversy, but not always with the same religious sides, right? So one minute, it could be an attack on Lutheranism. So often anti-Catholic texts would associate um, beehives with the shape of the papal you know, sort yes. of uh, headdress, right? I mean, this is kind of in some ways where I started. Uh, I got interested in bees because I was reading John Milton's Paradise Lost, the extraordinary passage in the first book in which the rebel angels chained to the lake of fire. What are they going to do? I know we'll have a parliament. Um, with, you know, John, John Milton's joke on politics of his day. They swarm like bees in springtime and they shrink down so they can fit into the parliament chamber and debate. Likewise, it's interesting that the different, uh, you know, we can talk about the hive and the sting uh, from the bee, whether that's the worker bee or not. Uh, but the drone in particular often gets associated in, in terms of, of religion, the, the lazy yawning drone uh, that gets talked about. But the, the, especially in 16th and 17th century uh, in England, the drone was often used to signal masterless men and vagabonds and beggars and the problem that London was having with those sorts of men. And the beehive was, it's often like Joe had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the hive and its inhabitants often get used metaphorically and they become shorthand really for people in the Renaissance to understand their own world. Yeah, moralized in so many ways. That persists today, although it's not the Catholic, anti-Catholic thing, but certainly the politics of, of the idea of the hive mind or like aliens that are like hive creatures are usually usually negative. Again, unless you live in Utah, the, the first European colonists here called this the Deseret Kingdom, right? And Deseret is a word that's found in the Book of Mormon. And Deseret is said to be the word for beehive. Mm. So, or, or for honeybee, actually. This busyness and the communalism and the emphasis on labor above all was really kind of a cultural value that the Latter-day Saints brought to Utah. It's pretty fascinating. Um, you were just talking about the sort of the hive mind and that, that collective uh, nature. Joe's heard me speak about this many times. So um, th this notion of, you know, can you talk about an individual bee? Is it even possible? Like when we talk about collectives like this, thinking about these, these entities that work together, you know, a mm -hmm. bee that comes back, a forager bee, who then will uh, come back and do the waggle dance to show where the, uh, the flowers are, whatever Thomas Seeley has spoken about this. Uh, he's a biologist and has written a great book called Honeybee Democracy, among others. And he talks about this, about how swarms can function as a cognitive entity. And when you think about that in terms of hive minds and hive mindedness, what does that mean for those individual bees? Do, do bees only have an identity as a collective? Or can we drill down and look at the individual bee? And this mm -hmm. really goes to some of the things we were talking about is the inability to keep bees as pets because they can't be controlled. Give them, you know, they'll always return to nature. They won't be, even if you give them a, a home, a dwelling and, and a hive, they will eventually leave you. Great pets. 
there was a <laughs> proverb that really got to this question. Um, and in Latin, it's una apis nulla apis. One B is no B, right? It's like one of those mm. one is no number sort of, you know, mathematical proverbs. But And it shows up in many of the texts. Um, I want to say it's quoted in The Feminine Monarchy, another wonderfully titled text samuel purchases a theater of political flying insects which i would i wish i'd written a book called that um but yeah what a great title cited often because of this it's it's so good um it's um because of this fundamental ambivalence do we admire the communal nature like the perfect commonwealth might look like a beehive which is why it shows up in virgil as he as aeneas looks down on the city of carthage which again is copied by um Shakespeare, as sort of he, as the um, Bishop of Canterbury, is talking to King Henry V about what the ideal society looks like, and it's an obedient society, right? One minute it seems like it's the ideal, or the the great work ethic of of um, the settlers in Utah, right? Um, and the next minute it's the terrifying alien hive mind, or I mean, think of all the kind of killer bee. B movies, or there's an extraordinary episode of Black Mirror, if you ever uh, watched that, in which these questions about swarm are tied to social media likability and and swarms as sort of military, Um, not only a military formation, but a kind of an actual sort of attack method. Like, so um, it's an episode that imagines in a time without bees, little drone bees have replaced all bees in England. And then it gets very complicated. Just when you think that's a complicated thing to think about, it gets so much more complicated. So I can't recommend that enough. But we have this fundamental ambivalence. Oh, gosh, we should imitate the bees. We admire the bees. They're such a great, perfect commonwealth. Oh, wait, no individuality. Oh, wait, is the hive mind terrifying, actually? So that's something I think, too, for me, is constantly fascinating about these works, is that they are in a great, in, in, in provocative way, undecided about so many things, even as they seem so fiercely articulate about how, why and how bees are so important. As writers are theorizing bees and both trying to understand them from a natural history perspective and through this kind of lens of a maybe political critique, how are literary authors, playwrights, poets, picking up on this discourse of the bees and, and incorporating it into their work? One quick answer is it's all over the place. Uh, <laughs> and yes. so there, there would be like, a, there would be a swarm of answers to your, to your uh, question. But again, <laughs> um, I know, terrible. Um, um, but you know, we've, we've even mentioned a few today, um, Shakespeare and, and sort of Milton and Virgil have already shown up. And yes, it's actually partly Virgil's fault. Everyone was wanting to refer back to Virgil as the great expert. And since in the Georgics, he says it's a master or king bee, well, it must be true. Thank goodness for Charles Butler saying otherwise, right? But um, there's a, so there's a long lineage of, of um, more extended passages. So people who would pick up that those sort of epic similes and really flesh out a vision of a commonwealth or a nation or a city. And then there are just quick references to all the things that are proverbial um, about bees, about their sting, about the sweetness of honey. Um, and those are very much through um, the European sort of Middle Ages and Renaissance, but also globally. Anyone who had bees was likely to have written proverbs about bees, right? So there's they're definitely, again, creatures we enjoy thinking with. And in particular, in addition to that, uh, to what Joe was just saying, a lot of 17th century poetry picks up on these images of honey, but sexualizes them in ways of the uh, the bee going to the honey and going to flowers, plucking the honey. It is all over cavalier poetry in the 17th uh, century. So there, it's a fascinating thing to read through. 
Yeah. And the fact that bees Swelling have the sting in the tail. Honey. <laughs> yes. yes, right? <laughs> the jokes about stings, yes. The sexual jokes about stings are throughout Renaissance drama. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it's not much more to say other than in some ways it's that obvious. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to make sure we, we don't miss out on some of the good stories or good lore from the, the ancient world moving forward. And one of the things I came across recently, I was shopping for syrup and I they, there was a golden syrup, which I had never had, but I believe is quite popular in the UK. And there's Lyle's golden syrup and on it is a lion and some bees. And there's, a, of course, a motto, as there always is with bees. <laughs> there's the motto there, but I thought this must come from some story. Oh, it certainly does. The image, the, the motto or the uh, tagline that's on the, uh, the syrup container, I guess, says, out of the strong came forth sweetness. And this is certainly a, a reference to book four of Virgil's Georgics, the notion that uh, of Bugonia, and it goes back further than that, of course, but um, most, you know, maybe most famously in Virgil, but Bugonia, which is the idea that bees come out of uh, a rotting ox carcass. So it seems to be, uh, you know, gesturing toward that. Okay. Yeah. And also, I think that one um, so is also um, Samson in the lion's den, right? Um, yes. and, but it's the similar story, right? And, and, and actually, for a number of centuries, so the, the story Keith just told from Virgil, right? The, the fourth book of the Georgics is all about how you get your beehive back. And fascinating things happen when, you know, when all the bees have died, what do you do? The idea is that you leave the carcass of an animal, of a, some kind of livestock animal, and it's generation through corruption was the phrase for it. It was this idea that you could recreate life, and in this case bees, by letting a certain carcass rot. And this is debated actually, or brought up as a valid sort of theory of, of, the, of a sort of generation of, of life for a couple centuries. Um, but again, mm -hmm. it's the story that's told in the Georgics. And again, there's sort of reference to it in the, in the, in the lion's den and the idea that the bees kind of fly out of the carcass of lion's body after it's, after it's dead. So it's a very old idea. They are then among those creatures that are spontaneously generated. It's, it's not a case of uh, the bees take up residence in the carcass of the animal, but they're they're born out of it. This was the theory again that was that uh, there, there were there were proponents of that theory. Yes, that it was spontaneous generation and generation through corruption or through the de decay of a, of another carcass. And then there were those who really didn't buy it, <laughs> and who who <laughs> might have sort of said something like, "Oh no, it's just something that's kind of resided in that in that carcass and kind of come back out of it." And it's repeated in in the B books in the late 17th century, actually. So it's not that it went away. And some observers would used to critique it and say they were probably seeing flies, right, uh, and mistook them for for bees. Of course, flies themselves do not spontaneously generate, which is, Correct. It, moves the, it moves the marker back one. But I'm, I'm going to say that I think I'll stick with maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you start thinking about the proximity of honey to carcasses, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you may have put me off mead too. <laughs> I wanted to relay a story um, that came from uh, a newspaper in the in Massachusetts in the early uh, 20th century, so about 1910 or so. The title of the of this short article was uh, "Bees Attend Beekeeper's Funeral." from Adams, Massachusetts. A strange tradition from the forgotten rural years 
when almost every family kept bees, was startlingly recalled after the death of one John Zepka. Throughout his life, Zepka had raised, worked, and loved his bees. He became widely known in the Berkshire Hills as a man who had a way with them. When his funeral reached the grave, mourners found the funeral tent swarming with bees on the tent ceiling and clinging to floral sprays. They did not annoy the mourners, just remained immobile. Nothing like it had ever been seen since. Recalled was the tradition telling the bees, kept alive in the poetry of John Greenleaf Whittier and Eugene Field. It held that the bees must be told when a member of a family dies and the hive draped in the shroud of black, lest the beeves leave their hive. What a great story. And clearly one that has old, old roots, I think. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think I I said earlier, I'm not even sure we know how far back it goes or exactly where that idea comes from. And it's a very powerful, very beautiful idea. Many poets have sort of made poems out of this. There's a wonderful Deborah Diggs poem called Telling the Bees. The idea that there would be a ritual to relay this information and also that there might be consequences to not telling the bees. And I think some of the odd stories are about horrible things that happen if you don't. But let's stay with the beautiful part, which is whatever the relationship, and it's hard to say, it's, again, we said earlier, they're not quite pets, they're not quite livestock, they're not quite this. There still is some kind of, mm, some kind of connection that is irrefutable. And if I'm not myself a, a, a beekeeper, and Keith has done more sort of beekeeping than I have, one of my first teachers from high school tired in my hometown, uh, Mohawk Valley of, of New York State, and became a beekeeper. He always refers to them, and I've had his honey, which is astonishing. His name's Nolan Marcinic, and he talks about the bees as his girls. And there's uh, and many beekeepers have these sort of fascinating, complex relationships that we have sometimes too much and too little language for. There's something very beautiful about that. There's certainly an intimacy, and I don't know if that's the right word, that beekeepers, from having gone to beekeeping society meetings and, and listened in to how they talk about their hives, the sadness, let's say, when uh, the varroa mite was affecting the hives and killing off hundreds, if not thousands of bees. Also, the, the notion that, that these bees are meant to be tended to, you know, and not, you know, when we say kept, uh, at, that seems like a, a, an ownership and bees just resist ownership, it seems too. But there's also in these beekeeping treatises from the 17th century that we discussed earlier that there's, there are moments where it's asking the beekeeper to be attentive in ways that they might not be used to. So anticipating, let's say, when they are going to swarm and picking up cues from the behavior of those bees. So there's a great passage at one, uh, in, in one where it talks about putting your ear to the hive. And if the bees are singing a particular song and sound a particular way, that means they're about ready to swarm. Then the treatises go into pages of talking about how you might prevent that. Um, so the, yeah, there, there really is a, a way of uh, an intimacy and a, a gesture toward how a beekeeper might read his or her bees, and not just for their own use, but human use, but also just because they certainly have grown close to them in some way. <laughs> You're a beekeeper, right, Ian? I have kept bees, <laughs> but it's hard to keep them alive. <laughs> in many ways, it takes a, a, a collective to do that with, right? Um, with the passed down knowledge of, of, uh, people in your area, a collective. That's how they did it in the Renaissance. I think that's what those 
beekeeping books were. They were a testament to knowledge that was passed down and reworked over and over again. And you know, they are not domesticated in the sense that we think of domesticated animals, but keeping animals and keeping animals alive and well and producing, there are similar problems and similar sets of sort of knowledge sets that are often community-based and passed down. The shepherd has a ton of knowledge about what to expect and how to keep the sheep from perishing, which they're always, they're, everything's always trying to perish, it seems like. Especially in Thomas Hardy novels. Yes. Alexa, do you have any other questions? I do not. I I mean, I have a lot of other questions, but probably not time for them here. I was thinking about all kinds of things like the Medici wax effigies, you know, that weighed the same as the victims of the assassinations, the Medici assassinations. I was thinking about how the monks of Cluny used to collect their taxes in the form of beeswax, which they would then send on to Rome. So many more things related to bees that one could explore. But I mean, they really are, for such tiny creatures, such a vast sort of universe of meaning. So that was a very long way of saying I'm done with my question. (laughs) (laughs) I want to, Keith and Joe, I want to thank you for uh, being willing to give our listeners your your time and all your wonderful stories and knowledge about bees in the pre-modern period. Thank you. Always happy to talk about bees. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. It was really wonderful. And of course, for our listeners, you can always check out our website, realfantasticbees.com, where we will have links to Joe's and Keith's book and, and various other things that you can look at and read about bees. Yes. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 